And welcome to Let's Talk It All. I'm Anvil. And I'm Jeff. And we're talking about it all. Yes, we are. Uh, what's the uh, subject tonight? Uh, subject tonight on shore number four? four? Yes, it Round is shore number four. Is UFO, Unidentified Flying Objects, and when they actually they're not flying, they're crashing into our planet. Huh, that sounds like a bad time. Well, uh, you know. Bad time. <laughs> Uh, you know, I think South Park did an episode on aliens before. Cartman. I'm sure. Yeah, had some kind of anal probe and stuff. It was quite interesting. Um, but yeah, so tonight. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, you know, we have a, a film festival thing coming up. We do have a film festival coming up in September, September 23rd, in Owego, New York. The greatest small little small town in America I think it was nominated and we will be doing paranormal films from around the area around the country and quite possibly around the world we have it open to national and international filmmakers uh, if you have done a paranormal type film we're getting to aliens or UFOs or Sasquatches or ghosts or possessions or haunted houses all that kind of thing uh, you can go to filmfreeway.com and type in Southern Tier or Southern New York Paranormal Expo Film Festival and it'll bring up our page there and it'll walk you through the steps to submit your film and it's really kind of inexpensive I think uh, it's ten dollars for students and then it goes on up from there and it could be a short film uh, feature-length film could be a parody uh, animated live action whatever it is we're, we're taking it all I think we've got about a dozen films in so far, and we're kind of excited. And along with that, we'll be doing an expo, mm -hmm. and we will have groups that hunt Bigfoot, and well, not hunt, kill, but hunt and look for, and <laughs> paranormal teams that hunt ghosts. Now, again, not kill them because, well, they're already there. They did. Uh, and vendors and, and the like, and this is going to be a good time in September. And I'm hoping that uh, we have MUFON there as well. I've been reaching out to MUFON, so hopefully we get uh, the MUFON regional we didn't, director. We didn't have a UFO contingent there last year. We'd like to have them there this yeah, year. that would be Definitely. really cool. Um, and uh, as always, you can uh, listen to the show on Diversity Broadcasting Network. Um, you can find them at diversitybroadcastingnetwork.com. Um, and uh, there's a lot of shows to listen to on that network. Every there day is. of the week, there's something on, uh, just about every hour, really. Um, uh, Let's Talk Ghost is on there on Let's Friday nights. Let's Talk Ghost is on there Friday nights. Uh, right before us is something called The Purple Tie. Yes, The Purple Tie. And yes. I caught a little bit of them uh, Friday, and they seem to be redneck ramblings, and it was kind of fun to listen to. And that's our kind of guys. They are. They are our kind of guys. Um, so, yeah, really cool stuff. And if you need to get a hold of us, you can find our webpage at www.letstalkitall.com. That's right. If you want to talk to Jeff, you can reach him at Jeff with a J G E or J E J J E J J E F F at letstalkitall.com or me, Anvil, A N V I L E with an E, Anvil with an E at letstalkitall.com. We have emails now there, and if you just have general questions and don't want to talk to either one of us, send it to info at letstalkitall.com. All right. Well, we're going to uh, start out tonight's show um, with the, the daddy of crashes, as I like to call it. Now, <coughs> Roswell, and I'm sure a lot of people out there might be sick of hearing about Roswell over the years, but... Um, 
I had recently listened to another show and it came up briefly and it, a lot of misinformation unfortunately was kind of passed on and then I couldn't let it slide. So uh, Roswell is fascinating for one, it is the beginning um, of the deep state um, or the shadow government if you will and uh, I'll go into detail here shortly of what I mean by that. So let's take a time warp back to 1947. So it is June of 1947 and we're in Roswell, New Mexico, or actually about 75 miles outside of Roswell to be honest with you. And a rancher, okay, uh, contacts sheriff. Uh, the rancher's name was uh, Max Brazell, by the way. Uh, he reported to the sheriff on July 4th, hey, Independence Day, um, that uh, he had some kind of material uh, from a crashed, uh, crashed object on his property. So the sheriff at the time then reported to the Roswell base uh, on or about July 7th. Um, the person in charge that responded to the sheriff to take and go out to the ranch, his name was Major Jesse Marcel. He was the base intelligence officer uh, for uh, the 509th bombing wing. You know, and here's an interesting fact about the 509th, and a lot of people don't know, is the 509th bombing wing was the only atomic bombing wing in the entire world at the time. The only place that had uh, atomic weapons uh, that could be dropped from a bomb for B-29s was in Roswell, New Mexico. Hmm. In fact, the 509th is the exact same bombing group that dropped the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um, the Game over, man. Game over. <laughs> perfect timing. That was perfect. Bump fist on that one. Um, Anvil's the man. Uh, but to our Asian friends, I apologize. <laughs> yes. Yeah. We're not. We're not laughing at what happened. Anyway, shape or form. Um, the base commander at Roswell at the time of the crash. His name was. Uh, it was Colonel William Blanchard. Who, by the way, was in charge of getting Little Boy and Fat Man, the two atomic weapons, uh, into uh, into Guam uh, to get ready for the run to have them dropped. And he was the actual backup pilot for the Enola Gay, which dropped the bomb on uh, Hiroshima. So the reason I'm pointing out this information, you have the only atomic bombing wing in the world. You have crack officers at the site. Okay, um, and they find what they first report is a crashed UFO, and then within a day the story changes. It's a weather balloon. So we're we're supposed to believe that these crack officers made a mistake between a crashed disc and a weather balloon. All right, so just keep that in mind. Only top bombing went in the world. So anyway, um, so after Marcel gets this material. Um, he actually, it's late at night by the time he gets back into town, he stops by his own house and his, he wakes up his 11-year-old son and his wife and they're playing with the material around the table and uh, there was one piece that was a, you know, a beam and it had hieroglyphics on it and uh, his son remembers it to this day. Actually, his son passed away a few years ago, unfortunately, but uh, he was a doctor. He ended up being a doctor. But he never found any uh, hieroglyphics, whether Egyptian or Chinese or whatever, that even matched uh, what was found. Um, and he said the material was really strange. It was very light, uh, less, uh, almost weighed less than a feather, and uh, it was very shiny, like a, a tin foil or aluminum foil. Um, but uh, you can bend it, um, and it would go right back to its normal shape after you bend it. You could cripple up your hand, throw it on the table, and it go back to its original shape. 
and it wouldn't burn. They tried burning it, and it would not burn. Uh, it was an extremely durable material and uh, had some kind of capability to resort to its normal state that it had before. Uh, William Hunt, Lieutenant William Hunt, was the base information officer uh, in July 1947. Um, he was the one that Colonel Blanchard uh, gave the permission to run that they recovered a crashed disc. Uh, interesting thing about Lieutenant William Hunt, he has now passed away, he passed away in 2007. Um, he did leave a signed affidavit to be opened after he passed away. Um, and in that affidavit, uh, he said that he saw the wreckage there was actually two crash sites, one on the rancher's location and another location. The other location actually had more of the intact craft and three uh, alien bodies were recovered. He saw the bodies and he saw the, what was left of the craft um, at Roswell when they brought it in. So then we have Captain Alfred Henderson. Now he, what he did is he helped load the wreckage and bodies onto the C-54 transports. He was actually one of the pilots of the C-54s and flew the wreckage to Fort Worth Army Airfield and then on to Wright Field in Dayton, Ohio. Uh, he reported there were three bodies. They were small with large heads and slanted eyes, humanoid looking but clearly not human. His wife, his daughter, and his best friend all signed sworn statements to what Captain Henderson told him. He provided this information to them uh, in very early uh, uh, the 1980s. Uh, Christine Tolk, the granddaughter of Sheriff George Wilcox, now this is the sheriff that uh, the rancher uh, first reported to, he also saw the craft and wreckage and bodies. And uh, he was threatened by the military, according to his great-granddaughter, and would never talk about it afterwards. Dan Dwyer was a firefighter. Uh, he also saw the bodies and the wreckage. And his daughter, Frankie Rowe, uh, also signed a sworn affidavit uh, testifying to what her father saw. This is where it gets really interesting. So we have all these first-hand witnesses and then family witnesses as well. And then we get into Colonel Edward Strieber. Um, he had spent much of his career at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base where some of the wreckage uh, ended up. He confirmed he knew the wreckage of the disc and the bodies recovered. Then we get into some generals who, after they retired, opened up and provided sworn statements and affidavits to what they saw and knew about Roswell. So we're going to start with uh, General Arthur E. Exxon, who was a Brigadier, Gen Brigadier General. In 1960, he was the chief of the ballistic missiles within the Directorate of Operations Headquarters, U.S. Air Forces in Europe. He was directly responsible for establishing the Jupiter Ballistic Missile System for NATO, you know, our deterrent. In 64, he was assigned as commander of Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Ohio. He later stated on record that there was a shadowy group, which he called the Unholy 13, who controlled and had access to whatever was recovered in Roswell. He went on to say, Well, I know that at the time the sightings happened and it went to General Ramey, who was now deceased, who was at Carswell Air Force Base, which we would know as Fort Worth, and the, along with the people out of Roswell, decided to change the story why they got their act together and got the information into the Pentagon and into the President. Of course, President Truman, General Spots, and the Secretary of War after September uh, 18, 1947, and it became the Secretary of Defense, by the way, Robert P. Patterson, and then after July 18th, Kenneth Royal. 
who have all now passed away, obviously, and other people who were close to them were the ones who made up the key investigation teams in relation to released information. One of my officers, he's talking about himself now, who did some research, worked for me at Wright-Patterson, who had done the research on his part and came up with a deal uh, that there was a great concern at the time that there would be fear of the people would panic if the sketchy information that they had, uh, such as it was, uh, were to come out. So it was their mission and so on, and uh, so they decided to make it a national cover-up basically at that point. Uh, and there probably wouldn't be much release into everybody who had involved in it, including the 13 people I'm talking about and their immediate staff who made up, you know, the 12 people, 13 people who made up the aggression team, it all passed away. So they wouldn't divulge the information or information wouldn't come out until uh, they were still alive. He said, the logical thing I know most of these people were around. I did not know their numbers, one and two people were at the top, staff including the Secretary of Defense, the Chief of Staff, and the Intelligence Circle, including the President's Office. Now, I, I'm sorry, I know it sounded a little fragmented, uh, but this is how he was relating the story in a taped interview. Um, so I had to kind of jot this stuff down, uh, just so you're aware of why it sounds a little fragmented. Now, I apologize for nothing. <laughs> And Anvil, once again, hit the nail on the head. <laughs> now, General Ramey, all right, now he's the guy you see in the weather balloon story. He's down, you know, he's down in a crouch position. Uh, you've got Marcel across the room for him, and he's holding up the, the weather balloon, and they're putting out the cover story at this point. It's a crash weather, weather balloon. General Ramey was the head of the 8th Air Force, okay? Uh, so this area, Roswell, fell under his direct command. Um, now, what's interesting, and you see these photographs, there's like two or three photographs of him down next to this, this, these, this merchandise, this, this weather balloon, which it really was a weather balloon, by the way, that they were showing. Um, he's holding a, a hand, a, a paper in his hand, in his right hand. And you can actually make out, and we're going to post this, by the way, um, you can actually blow up. The technology day does exist with computers where they actually blow up this paper in his hand. And it does say victims of the wreck, so we know there was victims. It wasn't a balloon, and it wasn't Project Mogul. Okay, so as we get that clear, it wasn't an advanced balloon, because that's what all Project Mogul was. Um, victims of the wreck um, and disc are clearly visible, and wreckage going to Wright-Patterson. It's all very clear once you use the computer technology today to blow up these original documents that are in his hand. So we know for a fact what crashed. We know it was a disc. We know there were victims of the wreck. They didn't say there were aliens, but we know there was victims. Okay, so people saw bodies. That's factual. There was a disc. That's factual. And the wreckage was taken to Wright Patterson Air Force Base, which again matches what witnesses said that actually transported it. Fact. Okay, now let's move on. Now we're going to get to General Thomas Dubose. In July 1947, he was General Ramey's chief of staff. So this is the guy that was the head of Ramey's staff before he was a general, obviously. <clears throat> According to Dubose, the debris traveled from Roswell to Fort Worth and was transferred to another plane with the acting Fort Worth base commander, Colonel Alvin Clark, assuming the role as the new carrier. Thus, the term Colonel Carrier came about. Obviously attesting to the importance attached to this shipment. This was then flown to Washington. The voice added that General McCullen, McMullen, I'm McMullen, sorry, would also inform him that the debris, the debris was subsequently, I can't say that word. What's that word, Daniel? I have a speech impediment, everybody. I do apologize. Subsequently. Yes, thank you very much. Uh, I should change it before I uh, put this together. Shipped on, but I want to use everybody's words as they recorded it in their affidavits, by the way. Shipped on McCollum's personal plane 
to the aeronautical labs at Wright Field for further analysis. <clears throat> and he goes on to say, there was a host of people descending on our headquarters seeking information from Ramey, badgering him for information we didn't have. I didn't know what it was. Blanchard, who was the base commander at Roswell, didn't know. Ramey didn't know. We didn't know what the hell it was. Nobody knew. But I can tell you this, it damn sure wasn't a weather balloon. General McMullen said, look, we don't we don't come up, we need to come up with something, anything you guys can get the press off our backs, come up with something. So we came up with this weather balloon story, which I thought was a hell of a good idea. Somebody got one, we ran it up a couple hundred feet and dropped it to make it like it crashed. And that's what we use. Now I imagine privately some people felt bad about doing this this way, but it worked and the story struck. General McMullen, if you ever knew him, if he told you he wanted to run something, he goddamn sure ran it. He knew every facet of operation. He was a busybody. He wanted to know what the hell was going on, who was pissing on the sidewalk, and all that sort of thing. McMullen told me, you're not to discuss this. This is more than top secret. It's beyond that. It's within my priority as deputy to General George Kenney, and he in turn is responsible to the President of the United States. This is the highest priority you can exhibit, and you will say nothing, and that's the end of it. Jesus, that's the commander-in-chief, and you forget about it. So this is the direction he was given mm -hmm. uh, by his commanding office. Now, what makes this all very interesting? So this happens on July 6th, 7th, and 8th. Okay. Now, the entire military-industrial complex, it wasn't a complex at the time, but the entire military is freaking out. This is before the Army split, you know, split into the Air Force, by the way. So you still have one joint force. Uh, it's important to really note right now uh, that the National Security Act was signed July 26, 1947 by Truman. Okay, given the military intelligence agencies top secret classification powers and the birth of the CIA and later the NSA. The official start of the CIA was September 18, 1947, but this act enabled it and it's right after Roswell. So this is really the beginning you know, of the deep state Roswell was. Yeah, I mean that would make sense. That's too much coincidence that all of a sudden they've got this crash site and then we now put into place some of the most secretive organizations and directives this country has seen and still continues to see. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and, uh, you know, I named all these different officers. Um, and if you ever, you, you just take some time to look up their, their military history, can you can do that quite easily today. And, uh, some of these guys are so decorated, it's it's ridiculous. You know, uh, General Du Bois, um, he dropped, he had 30 bombing missions uh, mm -hmm. during the war. Jeez, uh, I mean, I could just go on. Uh, not, Narcel wasn't really uh, that much into the war, but uh, Captain Alfred Henderson, who flew the wreckage, uh, actually was highly, highly decorated extremely well decorated uh, for his actions during the wartime. These are really crack officers. Um, it's just fascinating, you know, a lot of the stuff that they talk about uh, and uh, just what happened. I mean, I mean, you got two different generals, you know, on record, you know, going, telling exactly what happened. You've got eyewitness testimony from the people who were there, um, all officers. And people don't realize when it comes to Roswell, there's actually over 100 signed affidavits by people who were there. And then there's another, I think, 150 of family members. You know, that were told the stories by, you know, their deceased right. fathers or grandfathers um, of what happened. Um, 
And it's just fascinating stuff. So Roswell happened. Uh, we do know for a fact that it was a disc. We do know there were bodies. And according to the signed affidavits, they were alien bodies. They were definitely not human. So uh, that is the fact of Roswell. You know, that, that was a weather balloon. It wasn't Project Mogul that the Air Force tried to pull out of their, their butt. And the only reason Project Mogul came up, by the way, people don't realize, I think it was 94, or 92, I think, uh, there was a representative from the great state, state of uh, New Mexico. And I think it was, uh, Schmidt was his last name, Congressman Schmidt. Mm -hmm. um, he actually went to the Air Force and the army trying to get answers about Roswell because he was being asked by the people who voted for him. Right. And he was being stonewalled. They would go to NASA. You know, NASA, we don't have anything. They go to the National Archives. And the National, we don't have anything. So he was being, you know, dicked around the way he put it. He actually used the word dicked around. Uh, so he uh, then used his congressional powers to get the General Accounting Office involved, which is the investigation arm of Congress. So the General Accounting Office started knocking on doors. And uh, they started going, you know, went to the Air Force and the Army and to the uh, National Archives and the Department of Defense, and they were raising a holy hell. So they were going to release a 50-page document uh, based on Roswell. And here's what's really interesting. Um, they found that the records from the Roswell base were illegally destroyed. No one who knows who gave the order, but for a five-year period, all the records dis disappeared. And it started in 47. So the year 47 to like 53 or 54 are completely gone. No one knows who destroyed them. No one knows who gave the order, but they disappeared. All right, so cover-up number one. Another thing they found was nobody would talk to them on the record. But the people that were around, some of them you know, retired, that would talk said, look it, nothing happened. But off the record, if you do find anything, you're not going to tell anyone, are you? They were that scared of the information coming out, but they wouldn't tell the investigators basically anything. So the Air Force got cute. So one day, one day before the General Accounting Office, you know, the Congress's uh, investigative arm reveals the results of its investigation, the Air Force releases its own to the New York Times. And the New York Times prints it in its entirety. And I think it was like two pages long or three pages long. It was ridiculously small. And they said they blamed it on it was Project Mogul, when Project Mogul was a top secret device at the time that they launched to listen to uh, for Soviet Union nuclear uh, launches or uh, testing. So this is what they claimed this device was, and this is why it was all in secrecy. Now, the Air Force was asked, because they did an interview, and it was carried by every major network, of course. And, of course, the official report from Congress was not, but this was. And there was a, a colonel doing the... Uh, <clears throat> Uh, the question answering by the press and they asked about the bodies well they said well, a lot of witnesses saw bodies and the Air Force said yes they did see bodies but they were dummies we used test dummies in different flights and they just probably got confused and sure. they're laying all over the you know the desert now the Air Force did use test dummies this is factual but the company who made the test dummies for the Air Force didn't start making them to 1952 <laughs> Roswell's in 1947 so the Air Force unwillingly <laughs> made themselves out to be liars in their own press conference. And this is actual factual data. The test dummies didn't even exist in 1947. So that part was a lie. But it just goes to show you to this day what they'll do to try and keep the truth as muddied as possible. You know, especially when it comes to this, this particular subject. Yeah, they will. And, and I think it's it's been 70 years, right? 47... 17, yeah, 70, 70 years. Yeah. 
and the the crazy thing about this is that if it were to come out now, if the government were to come out now and say, we we've been visited, we were visited seven years seventy years ago, been being visited past seventy years, the American public would be pissed <laughs> about the cover up and not amazed at the story. Right. There won't be panic because of the story. Right. There'd be rioting because our government lied to us again. Yep. And, and investigations just, out the wazoo would happen. Oh, yeah. And, <laughs> you know, I, we would we would miss the point. Right. Yep. The, the, the actual amazing thing would just be boop, over our heads, and we would just be focused on the fact that the government lied. Although, I would tell you, 70 years ago, the world would have freaked out. Oh, and well, the world would have freaked out. No, they would have. And what they did at the time, I think, was correct. It was the correct course of action. You had the this Cold War just started. Mm-hmm. You know, we just came out of a major world war. You know, everybody's nerves were on the edge because of the nuclear weapons now, the atomic weapons. You know, we felt that war could break out with the Soviet Union at any time. So yes, they did the right thing. The last thing you want to do is, oh, by the way, <laughs> you know, aliens dropping in on us now. I mean, you didn't want to freak out the public. You didn't know anything about it. We didn't know their intentions. And as far as we know, we don't still. You know, and here, here's the, here lies the problem. Even today, you couldn't release the information because you got all these people literally around the world, and we're we're literally talking thousands upon thousands to come forward now uh, about these alien abduction scenarios. And if that's true, that means they're invading our airspace, they're abducting our citizens, and they're doing medical experiments to get uh, you know to them. I mean, you open up a Pandora's box like you could never open. You can't go on the air as the right. President of the United States and say, oh, by the way, we want... People would freak the F out. I mean, think about it. Everyone would be in their basement with tin hats on. Well, that's <laughs> you know not, I mean? not that we're not now. Yeah, but, yeah. yeah we are in the basement. We're at my <laughs> bar, actually. we got to put some pictures up on the bar. That's what we should do. Make some tin hats. We should tin hats on. It's crazy. Yeah, I... I and I guess it begs to differ. And, and when I did my research, which is un, unusual, I do research usually. I just look for a good movie that will tie into our theme. <laughs> there was actually a report, and it's called the Aurora Incident. And it happened in Texas. And supposedly something crashed into one of those crazy Texas farm windmill things. Sure. The crazy thing is this was in 18... I want to say 1887, 1897, April 17th, 1897. Uh, a slow-moving spaceship crashed into a Texas windmill and exploded to a thousand pieces. Debris uh, was scattered. Uh, supposedly, a small alien was discovered. Body was discovered and buried in a local cemetery. With no gravestone. With, probably with no gravestone. Um, the this was a story that was, you know, at that point it was just a story. I mean, we're talking 1897, right before turn. It was of, in the paper. Turn of the cent- that century, right? Not our century, but that <clears> century. <throat> um, but the report I had that I read is that in '73, a 91-year-old woman came forward, and she was a teenager at the time, and relayed the story, but said their parents wouldn't let her go to the site um, when it happened. And this is called the Aurora Encounter. They actually made a movie in '86, and this is kind of the first supposedly visitation. Sounds like almost it was an accident, did crash. 
But what I find interesting, other than this one anomalous report, is that all this stuff starts after we detonate two nuclear devices, yep. plus all the testing. Yep. Um, did we get someone's attention when we did that? I, I think that's a very good possibility. You know, uh, a lot of this craziness goes on in New Mexico, which was basically our dumping ground for nuclear testing and activity yep. and waste and whatever yep. else. And that's why land's so cheap. You know. You can glow um, in the dark. You can. <laughs> um, so did we, you know, are they visiting us because it just happened so? Or are they like these, you know, hairless monkeys that are playing around with stuff that they shouldn't? <laughs> right. You know? Exactly. So that's, I think that's the bigger question is, you know, they may not mean us any harm, but they're probably keeping a close eye on us and really monitoring what we're doing at this point. Yeah. Um, and just so you know, as we're discussing this, folks, this <clears throat> this discussion will carry on to many other shows at different points because uh, this is a very complex issue. Um, but uh, I think, you know, what we should do is I'm thirsty. I'm thirsty, too. I, I think we should do a shot. It's that time. It is. <laughs> and, and well, what do we have tonight? We have Midori, which is the... A green Japanese melon infused liqueur. Ah. And it is as green as our little friends in Roswell probably were, <laughs> except everyone says they're gray. So, you know, I'm not drinking anything gray. So yeah. I'm just telling you that. Yeah. Straight up, we're not doing the gray, gray, and, gray drinks. And just so everybody knows, on the big words. <laughs> I let Anvil, um, I really do have speech impediments, it's not even funny. I was actually, you, know, you hear stories about this, I was actually born tongue-tied, I ain't making this up. And I had to have an operation, and I had to have my tongue clipped. Um, I can't, you can't make this kind of stuff up, folks, you really can't. Uh, but true story. And the shot glasses we have tonight have been in my family for generations upon generations. Um, and the cool thing about these is, uh, the first X-Files movie, which was basically about aliens and the end of the world and them invading and all that stuff, uh, when Mulder is sitting at the bar getting hammered, um, he's actually drinking out a, a uh, shot glass that are exactly the ones that have been in my family for like 40 years. So uh, I don't know if they're cheap reproductions, but these are true American glass. Uh, they may even be 50 years old at this point, but they are true American glass, real deal, big ass shot glasses. There's one green for you on you, sir. And there's one for me. It's even got a neat little line on there where you're supposed to. Generally, yeah, I don't pay attention. You know, to line. Imagine we went past. We went over the line. Imagine that. All right, here's right. to swimming with, with bow-legged aliens. All right, I like yeah, aliens. Yeah, I'll do that. Oh my gosh. That's all right. That's not bad at all. You know, they did have a cheaper version of this. It was like seven dollars. Mr. Boston makes it. Yes, that's what I was going to buy. Yeah. But I'm like, you know what? This is a special occasion. We're going to get the real stuff. It'll look nice on my bar, too. So it will. Yeah. All right. So, uh, is there any news uh, that we should cover today, sir? Oh, news. There's been a lot of stuff going on. Um, apparently, England England is the new America for terrorist attacks. Yeah, and we want to send out our, our, our heartfelt, heartfelt, you know. Sympathy the, and concern for yeah. all the craziness going on over there. Um you know, and I'm not making fun of anything, but 
it's tough to get a gun in England. Yeah. You, so, <laughs> but you can get a car like there's no one tomorrow. Yep. And so they've they've gone to what they can get their hands on. Yeah. Yep. Which, you know, is a car, and they they just run people over, and I guess knives are still readily available, and they they hack people up, and but yeah, it's uh, very sad. We 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 feel bad, and support England and what they need to do to keep themselves safe. You know, my my personal worst fear with all this really is, uh, it, uh, I hate saying it because it, it's been said before, but, you know, one of these nut jobs, you know, one of these countries that support the terrorists, whether it be Iran or, you know, Syria or whoever it may be, um, get a hold of a nuclear device. You know, that's this is going to take one at the wrong place, at the wrong country, and someone's going to overreact, and that's going to be the start of everything, I think. You know, the end of humanity, if you will. I think I think they're saving that card for America. Could be. I don't think I don't think if they have. Oops, that's making noise. If they have that ability to get a suitcase nuke or whatever it is, someplace and detonate it, they're not going to waste it in France. They're not going to waste it in in England because I will tell you, if you look at France and England, they have a huge Muslim population. population. And it's just a matter of, I would say, less than a decade in France and England and eventually Germany will be Muslim countries. It could be. They're being invaded. They're they're saving they're saving the big end, and for for us. Yeah, could be. Absolutely. It's crazy. Absolutely. Um. You know, there's something I just wanted to hit real quick because it kind of goes in this whole deep state thing and shadow government stuff that we've been talking a little about with Roswell in the beginning of it. Um, if you guys, we're going to do a show about this in the future, but you should look up Bill Beanie. Uh, he was the director and founder of Project Stellar Winds, uh, which is a documented NSA um, program to spy on American citizens. Uh, he's the one that developed the technology for it. He's a whistleblower today. Uh, he's been on Fox News, CBS. NBC, uh, CNN, and Dateline, so he's not make-believe. And the stuff he'll tell you, the stuff you can, you can look at on YouTube and watch his interviews, it will scare the pants off you. Um, he basically came out and said it wasn't, uh, it wasn't the Russians who did all this hacking. It, it was our own intelligence agencies uh, for their own purposes. And right Did now... I get an amen? <laughs> yeah, amen. Amen, brother. And right now you've got, you've got former congressmen... You've got former, you got current senators, you got former uh, governors uh, talking about, uh, and just this last week actually, if you go on Watch Fox or any of the other Newton networks, um, they're talking about really the attack on the Trump administration. The White House has been compromised. Um, there's definitely uh, a mole inside the White House, if not moles, um, and this is all being driven by the shadow government. This has nothing to do with politics anymore. This isn't the Democrats trying to take down the president. This is not the Republicans trying to take down a president or an administration. Uh, this is special interest, shadow government people um, trying to undo uh, a, a republic, a, a democracy, because uh, that's what's going on. Um, and again, I am not a huge supporter, fan of Trump. I don't support everything he does. But uh, instead of trying to assassinate the guy, uh, what they're trying to do, like they did with Kennedy, uh, what they're trying to do is take him out another way. Um, and the, again, just go online, do your own research, um, see the interviews, see the documentation. Uh, some of the stuff's been released under the Freedom of Information Act of uh, 1974. 
uh, and you will see this stuff that will just blow your mind. You you won't believe that you live in the country that you do when you see these documents. Um, I guess we move on to the next uh, UFO location. Yeah, I think we've got a couple that we looked at. I think one was Russia. Yeah, uh, there was actually a crash, a supposed crash in 1969 in a area of Russia in the Ural Mountains called Sardosk. Now, that name may sound familiar because uh, in 1960, Gary Powers U-2 was shot down in the same area. Uh, so obviously this is where the Soviet Union at one time had their best air defense systems. Um, and they may have taken down this UFO. Now, there's very little information about this. You can go on YouTube. Uh, there's different documentaries you can watch uh, about this. And there is some footage, actual footage. And you're going to also see footage for an alien autopsy that was associated with it. The alien, the alien autopsy is obviously something that was done later. It is fake as heck. But the footage you will see of the, uh, the craft, uh, I believe, is real. And I'm going to explain why. Um, I studied the uniforms uh, that the soldiers, the Russian soldiers, the Soviet Union soldiers were in, uh, from boots to belts to coats to hats. Everything was exactly period correct. I'm Russian, by the way. Uh, the weapons were AK-47s, and they were Russian-made. They did not look like the cheap Chinese uh, knockoffs. And military protocol uh, was followed and was period correct as well. What got me more was the uh, just little things like the KGB officer that seemed to be in charge of the site. You'll see him, and if you study the footage long enough and hard enough and you see some of the close-ups, you'll see in his one hand he actually has a cigarette. Now, if you know anything about Russians, okay, we're all about vodka and we're all about cigarettes. Uh, that's what we did, okay, back in the day. And to this day, it's still very true. You know, it's not, it's not make-believe. It's vodka and cigarettes. Uh, another interesting thing about the footage is there's two camera locations. There's one, uh, you're on a truck uh, filled with soldiers. Uh, you're coming in with a, you know, a, small, a small platoon. And there's a, it looks like to be a, like a, a truck-mounted camera on top. Um, and as you're coming into the site, you see two Jeeps are already pulled in. You see you know, their tracks where they go in. You don't see any of the tracks, which tells me it wasn't rehearsed. All right, so you know those two Jeeps are the only two vehicles there, and they were the first two things on the scene. Um, you'll, as the camera, as you see the soldiers get out walking towards the site in, in the correct military form, um, you will see another cameraman off in the distance. He's already been there. He's already filming. He's filming the craft. And they're, you know, the KGB officer in charge is pointing out different things for him to film. And actually, he'll turn the camera at one point and start filming so another set of soldiers that come in to guard the perimeter. Um, it's a very short film. Uh, if there's two minutes of this footage, I'd be shocked. Uh, but it's, if you look at the details, like the tops of the trees being knocked in and trees knocked down where the craft is, and, and just the military aspect of it, you're going to understand very quickly that this was not a, uh, a fake, a, a forgery. Um, and the footage obviously very old as well. Um, so to me, uh, this is probably the real deal. Have you ever seen it, Anvil? Or? The Russian one? No, yeah. I, haven't, I haven't seen the footage on that. All right, you should take some time. It's a, and again, just study it, and you'll see yeah. what I'm talking about. The, it's very good footage. Um, is there another case that you wanted to talk about? Uh, just again, I was going through some of the other things, and um, you, the the superpowers at the time were not the only ones being visited. Uh, other countries have had their fair share of sightings and crashes. Uh, Spain, 
in 94, uh, reported a crash uh, that they were investigating. Uh, the uh, called the that was in Spain. There's one in uh, North Wales. A UFO crash believed to be uh, smashed into the hills hillsides, um, and that was also made report in '74 of the Men in Black showing up to cordon off the area and, hmm. and look into it. Uh, Spain and then Mexico had a couple different things that reported that made the top 10 list of real UFO crashes on the site I was looking at. Huh. But there was also one in PA, and I think you have some information uh, on that one. Yes, Catsburg, Pennsylvania, made famous by Unsolved Mysteries, actually. A lot of people didn't know about the crash in Catsburg. Um, it happened on December 9th, 1965. And I'm going to tell you kind of what happened. Uh, lots and lots of people on the East Coast, uh, Pennsylvania, uh, not just the East Coast, but Midwest, Pennsylvania, Ohio, in Michigan um, all saw a giant firebird uh, fireball in the sky it was actually a meteor and it was well tracked um, they were able to determine uh, by this path where the meteor landed it landed somewhere in Ontario uh, region of Canada uh, but many many people saw this thing um, but in Kecksburg it was a little bit different uh, they saw a fiery object in the sky and every witness who watched it in the sky and we're talking you know a few hundred people at this point said it changed direction. Um, it would stop and then it's like it didn't know what it was going to do. It would do a U-turn and do a figure eight. Um, this has come from many, many witnesses, by the way. I'm not sure it's still alive today, by the way. Um, and then it came down in a uh, in a wooded area in Kecksburg. And the Kecksburg, by the way, is outside of uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, uh, around Latrobe area, which I've been to before, by the way. Uh, so I'll start out with the, the first guy on the scene. It was a local reporter. And he was the news director for the local radio station WHJB. His name was John Murphy. He arrived on the scene of the event before authorities had arrived. He, uh, in response to several calls to the station from alarmed citizens, he took several photographs and, and conducted interviews with witnesses. His former wife, Bonnie, uh, later reported that all but one roll of film was confiscated by the military personnel. Um, actually, when he was there, when he was taking the photographs, uh, the military eventually showed up and they confiscated all the rolls that he had in his camera, but he had actually slipped one into his pocket. And we'll get to that a little bit later. Um, WHJB office manager Mabel Mozzie, who's still alive today, described one of the pictures. It was very dark and it was a lot of trees around and everything. And I don't know how far away from the site he was, but I, I did see a picture of a sort of a cone-like thing. It's the only time I ever saw it. I never saw it again. Frank, or uh, John Murphy was to do a documentary that same day, uh, or right right after the craft, uh, a day after the crash had, uh, the craft had crashed. He had interviewed all these witnesses of housewives, teenagers, young men, firefighters, police officers. He had all this recorded on uh, audio tape uh, with their names. And he was going to do a uh, documentary over the radio over it. Uh, before Murphy's documentary was to air, he was visited by two men in suits who said they were government agents, and this was witnessed by the station personnel at the time, by the way. The meeting was behind closed doors at the station, and it lasted less than 30 minutes. When it was over, Murphy had become uncharacteristically despondent and completely stopped all investigation on the case and refused to talk to anyone about it. 
and never gave clear reasons why, including to his wife. He never talked about it again. He did do the documentary. He did not use any eyewitness testimony. He just said people saw something in the sky. It was a complete letdown, and it was completely not the documentary he had written, according to the station manager. <clears throat> in 1969, three years after the event, John Murphy was killed in a hit and run. It remains an unsolved case. And the film has never recovered uh, that uh, the pictures he had had that the government did not take or get uh, has never been recovered. But he was, uh, he was murdered in a hit and run, um, and the, whoever did it was never caught. Uh, I think it, uh, it may have been a look again. This is another show topic and we'll get to it at some point, but there's clear evidence. This is what the military does or the industrial complex does anyway. Um, going on that, uh, <clears throat> numerous firefighters and townspeople also made it through the woods before the military showed up and quarantined the area. They witnessed a acorn shaped object with what they described as hieroglyphic symbols on the bottom. Once the military quarantined the area and removed the eyewitnesses, a large military flatbed truck was brought in and left about three hours later with an acorn-shaped object on the flatbed covered with a tarp. The bottom of it could be seen and some hieroglyphic symbols matching the eyewitnesses' accounts were visible. According to one eyewitness, many who have, sorry, according to many eyewitnesses, many who have signed sworn affidavits, the military commandeered the fire station as a base of operations. Now, 40 years later, the original fire chief is still alive, claims this is not true, and he witnessed no military. So according to this guy, all right, he was the fire chief, no one was there, no military. Even though his own you know, uh, firefighters gave sworn affidavits that they overtook the fire station. Also, many witnesses at the time backed out doing a radio documentary do they have claimed they were pressured by the gov a government agency not to close what they saw. <clears throat> Numerous Freedom of Information Act requests have been filed with the Army, Air Force, and NASA. Each request yields little to no information, basically a stonewall operation. The military claims they did not recover any object from Pittsburgh or even have a presence there. This was later proven to be a deception due to Project Blue Book, which was an Air Force operation, was declassified, and the report shows they did indeed respond, as they put it, with a few officers to look into a possible meteor landing. <clears throat> Due to the conflicting declassified reports and the Air Force and Army official denials, NASA was ordered by the court to produce all files in relation to the case. NASA claims all records are lost. So we now know they did have records, something happened, but they lost the files. <clears throat> the court ordered them to search again, and then again NASA came back with the, and said the records were lost. So for the time being, it's a stalemate. Um, this is probably, it, it's so well documented uh, just because everybody was basically still alive uh, that saw the object, yeah. uh, the, the witnesses who saw it, you know, in the in the woods, crashed. Uh, they gave descriptions of the craft it was acorn shaped, uh, had hieroglyphics on the bottom. They said it was kind of like Egyptian, but it wasn't. None of the witnesses could ever match anything they were showed. You know, Russian writing, different Chinese dialects, and nothing matched it. Um, and the Chinese didn't have that technology at the time anyway. The Russians did, but definitely not the Chinese. Uh, but nothing they ever seen had ever matched the writing on the bottom of the craft that they had witnessed. Um, and the Air Force lied, again, as they always do. Um, they said they didn't have anybody there, there was nothing there, and they never showed up. Uh, but their own Project Blue Book, when those files are declassified, most certainly does show that they were there. Um, so everything's false again.
You know, they lie, lie, lie. And I, again, I, you understand, it's the middle, you're at the height of the Cold War. You know, in 63, you had the Cuban Missile Crisis, which is only two years after the fact, or 65, or before fact, I should say. <clears throat> so you can understand that, you know, uh, there was a lot of fear, um, I think, from everybody, you know, what these things were. Um, but it's obvious that the military got there very quickly. Um, so I would assume um, from what happened in Roswell um, that a special military unit was formed uh, to deal with crashes. That would make sense. That would, in, I don't know, you got to think there was some heads up before this. Right. You know, they, to, to move that quickly with the cover up and, and do all that, they, they, I would almost say they kind of knew that reports of visitations prior to that, they gave it credence and started to prepare for the day something actually materialized. Right. And there is a very famous uh, uh, illegally declassified document. Um, it's called the Majestic 12 document. And new, I don't know if you ever heard of Majestic 12? Yes, I have. All right. Um, over the years, people said it's been fake and it's fake, it's not real, and all this other jazz. Um, there's evidence uh, to support that it's real just because in the National Archives, a signed uh, by uh, Eisenhower actually, a briefing document, the cover letter for Majestic 12 uh, briefing document uh, was signed by Eisenhower, um, and that was in the National Archives. So we know that a group called Magic or you know Majestic 12 did exist at one time um, and it was the highest classification in the United States it was actually 52 levels higher than the H-bomb um, the classification for it um, and Majestic 12 was actually uh, sent uh, a microfilm if I remember correctly uh, to a UFO researcher and they kinda ran with the story this is back in like 84 or 85 or something like that uh, I cannot remember the gentleman's name, and I do apologize if he listens to the show, because <clears throat> I'm sure he's still around. But he had these documents. He ran with them, and then Stanton Friedman, who, which is extremely well known, again, he's you know, he's Stanton Friedman is this nuclear physicist that the Air Force actually employs to speak um, to their fighter pilots and what to do if they see a UFO. And this is documented. This isn't make believe. So <laughs> this UFO investigator is actually paid by the Air Force. To give briefings to uh, Air Force pilot cadets on how to react to a UFO sighting. I, I can't, you can't make this stuff up, folks. And oh, by the way, the uh, FEMA, the FEMA Firefighters Manual actually has a whole chapter on what to do with a crashed UFO. You can't make this stuff up. And it all, and all this information, by the way, comes from the Department of Defense. This is where all the documentation comes from for the FEMA manual. So they know, you know, there's there's programs out there. But Majestic 12, um, we'll do a show on that. I can't go too far in there because I'll get lost. You know, I don't want to get off too far yeah. off topic with the crashes. But it's a great thing. Just look it up. Uh, there's two guys, a father and a son, um, that have been researching it for years, and they have so many more documents. They have one, you know, in uh, Einstein's handwriting. Uh, he had a part of it. I mean, just Dr. Von Neumann. I mean, like, you, it would just blow your mind the stuff they have um, that's been leaked, you know. The Roswell case isn't really secret anymore uh, because it's been leaked. You know, there's no cover-up because everything's out there. Uh, the only problem is you have to have to kind of shift through everything to get to the truth. 
because there's a lot of disinformation out there and misinformation um, out there. Unfortunately, you know, people talking about things they don't really know about. You know? This is true. So that's why I try to do my research. And if I hope I didn't bore anyone. So, <laughs> so I suggested that the government had a heads up possibly before and planned on things. I think the government does. I think the government watches everything and they kind of see some of the stuff that goes on in, in the entertainment industry. And it says, well, that's probably will never happen, but what if it does? Right. So there was an incident in 1938, October 30th, 1938. Ring any bells? No, it's not. Orson Welles broadcast oh, for geez, the world. Oh, jeez. Yes, yeah. Um, Trenton, New Jersey. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All places. That explains Jersey, right? Um, and... And, and now, today, 21st century, they are quick to say, well, the panic wasn't as widespread as everyone made it out to be, and blah, 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 blah. But I'll tell you, my parents were alive at the time. They were they were in their mid to late teens, and they said that was some scary shit. Even though they were saying, you know, that it was a broadcast of this, that, people bought into it. Yeah. And people didn't know. Yeah. And people actually, uh, people in Trenton went out to the field because they, you know, went out to the field and they were shooting their shotguns at the damn windmill. Because they thought it was a, it was foggy and they thought it was the damn aliens. I ain't making this up. This is you can research. This really happened. They were that freaked out. So this is thirty eight. In thirty eight, thirty nine, is that roughly around when Hitler started his yeah, his, aggressive his crusade. moves? Yeah. And, and we didn't get into the war till later, but this is all. I guarantee you, someone in the government said, "Hey." I don't know about Martians, but we probably should have something in place in case that happens. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think I think uh, sometimes um, life imitates art, or art gives us an idea what life might have coming towards us. Well, the military had a bit of an idea um, that there might be something because during the war, both sides—the Nazis, the Japanese, and the Allied forces. All reported what they were called foe fighters on our side, or foo fighters. Foo fighters. And uh, everybody thought the other side's secret weapon. Uh, well, they weren't. They weren't anybody's secret weapon, and to this day, don't know what they were. But that gave the start to the military, you know, that, mm -hmm. it, all right, there's something going on here. So they had a little, you know, they had an idea. They had an idea, but when one actually crashed and, you know, little gray aliens popped out of it, I don't, they weren't, I don't think they were prepared for that at all. I really don't. I, I think... I think Truman was up there, and this is the guy that dropped the bomb. He gave the order to drop the bomb. I, I think he was like, "Holy shit!" <clears throat> I really do. Yeah, well, I would, I would think that's probably an accurate story. We may not find out for a couple hundred years. But, yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. But it was fairly accurate. <clears throat> Other than that, um, great show. I think we had a lot, lot to think about, lot to discuss. Roswell was a big thing. That was the focus, yep. and that's. Because that's always, you know, Area 51, below this, that, and everything else. So, yeah, this is, uh, like I said, this is... You know, and, and gets back to Roswell. You know, it always goes back to Roswell. That's where the security start stated. The security state started, I should say. And um, and I don't think today, whatever, whatever information about UFOs is out there now, or aliens, or whatever the heck they may be, um, I believe it or not, I really don't think the government has a lot to do with it. I don't think the president has a clue. I don't think, I don't think since George Bush Sr. a president had a clue. George Bush Sr. was the former head of the CIA in the 70s, so he would have a you know an idea. 
but other than that, I don't think Clinton knew anything. I don't think George Bush Jr. knew anything. Uh, Obama definitely didn't know anything. And I doubt they'll tell Trump anything. So uh, when it comes to this particular subject, I don't think the federal government knows a lot about it anymore. I think it's actually held by uh, private companies. For one simple reason is private companies are not accessible to the Freedom of Information Act uh, because taxpayer money is not being used. They can basically do what they want. Um, and you have the right contacts, uh, the black projects, and you can, you can get away with it. You know, So more than likely it's Lockheed Martin and Boeing and companies like that or key people within them that really control the information and certain scientists I'm sure as well. Um, in generals, obviously, just on the backside, um, but I think that's how it's controlled now. I don't think. Yeah, it's a private, private company. I don't think any Congress or Senate has a clue. Senator has a clue. <clears throat> I honestly don't. Um, I'd be shocked. See, no, nah, see, I wouldn't. I, I think they, I think they are. I think this all comes down to, to money. Yeah, could it be. It all comes down to money. Um, Boeing, the, the private companies get the contracts. They have promises in place to government officials when they retire. Well, yeah. You know, yep. sitting on the board, blah, blah, yep. this, blah, blah, that. So, yeah, I think, you know, it still comes down to, you know, American greed. God bless it. <laughs> but speaking of American greed, tonight's special sponsor for our show was Area 51 Weather Balloon Recovery and Repair. <laughs> coast to coast coverage, blue book value given if they can't repair it. And you can reach them at 1-800-PHONE-HOME. That's 1-800-PHONE-HOME. I love that. That yeah. is fantastic. They're great guys out there. I guess they are. And they recover them, they repair them. And, and if they can't, they get a blue book value. <laughs> coast to coast. Coast to coast. coast trade to that coast. puppy in. Oh, yeah. yeah. Trade that puppy in. Yeah. yeah. Huh. That's fascinating. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Well, I, we're almost out of time here, so I just want to say thank you to Diversity Broadcasting Network uh, again for having us on, and uh, check out all the other shows on there as well. Um, and I want to say thank you to my co-host, Anvil, who's just an awesome guy. He does everything great with this, uh, the website and everything, and uh, I still don't know anything about it. And uh, that's all right, though, because uh, I don't want to screw it up. So uh, with that, um, remember this, folks. Uh, the will to solve a mystery is not as important as the will to prepare to solve a mystery. In short, make sure you do your homework. Have a good night. <laughs>